Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. In today's program, my guest is Peggy Liu. She is a chairperson of a Chinese non-governmental organization, an organization that catalyzing society towards a greener future. Peggy is also a World Economic Forum young global leader and The Economist called her one of the most innovative thinkers in Asia. Peggy is a transformer and she bringing people together across borders and industries to transform society in issues that focus on sustainability. Peggy is a well-known keynote speaker around the world on lessons from how China is tackling the world's toughest challenges, pollution, urbanization, pandemics, drought and obesity. What can other society learn without becoming China? How can we as individuals understand the need of system change and transform our society? This is what we're going to talk about in today's program. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you, Kai. It's so great to be on your podcast. We met some time ago at the new social media platform Clubhouse, talking about the future of cities. Future of cities is a question that engages the whole world, particularly when we talk about climate change and the UN 2030 agenda. Even if cities only use 2 to 3% of the planet's land, the cities soon include 75% of its planet's population and the use of 70% of its energy and also adding 70 to 80% of the carbon emission on the planet. How do you see these challenges, Peggy? Every single one of my changes that I've created in China, whether it's revolutionized the electrical grid by introducing smart grid or creating the first eco-city classes for mayors, which I've taught personally a thousand mayors across China, or catalyzing clean energy in 2007, or the China dream, the national slogan now of China. All of these changes and more only took three years. If you go beyond three years, you've lost momentum. So it's not enough to dream. What you have to do is you have to describe it with joy and emotion, not white papers and numbers that numb. What you have to do is understand that you have to keep momentum going. And so what we lose is we go to these forums, we throw out a white paper that has numbed people's minds and hearts, numbed people's hearts for sure. And then we stop the momentum in China. If you're from a Chinese perspective, looking into the learning process in the field of climate action, in which field do you think China can learn from other countries and what can cities learn from China without becoming China? Well, let me first talk about what China can learn from the rest of the world, because Chinese people love education. And one of the things that I did in the last decade was educate government officials, specifically mayors of cities and above central government officials. And I did this in mandatory government training classes at government academies that their entire job 
is to fulfill mandatory requirement of 12 days a year of training at any government level or more. If you're going to have a large promotion, sometimes they do a month long training, three months long training, a year long training. And so this is what I did when I lectured at the National Academy for Mayors of China, the uh, China Executive Leadership Academy of Pudong and the China Academy of Governance, where I was a distinguished professor on sustainable urbanization. So Chinese people basically are always looking outside for inspiration that they can localize for their particular city's characteristics. Of course, China is the size of like Europe and as diverse as Europe. So every single city, every single village is different. It might be hilly, it might be flat. It might be hot, it might be cold, right? So it might have centralized heating or might not have centralized heating. So the secret to China is, is that it does not have a not invented here syndrome. It's okay if it's not invented in China, but it can localize it for the context of China. It's very happy to be a student of the world. And so in these classes, what I did was, whether it was low carbon transport class or city level climate action plan class or district heating and cooling class or eco heritage tourism class, what I would do is I would go to New Zealand Kaikoura for eco heritage tourism. I would go to Bryant Park in New York for public parks. I would go to Tokyo and Seoul, Korea and Taipei for municipal waste. And I would do little videos that I cobbled together on iMovie from clips off of Google. And then I would make a story, like bringing them there as a virtual tourist and letting their eyes fill with wonder. And I had music and I had narration. And it was a little bit like James Cameron bringing you to the avatar world, except it was, you know, like Stockholm or Copenhagen. I did a whole video on Copenhagen and bicycles. So then the mayors can sit there and say, oh, I can imagine this in my city. And then at the end, they always ask me, who do I call so that I can start implementing this right away? So I would say, what can China learn from the rest of the world? It's always learning from the best practices. Yeah. It's always sending people out. That's, that's why China is moving fast. One of the reasons why China is moving so fast, because it views itself as a student of the world versus a leader of the world. I see that uh, you're talking about networking and between cities and is uh, one way to learn from each other. Uh, but how are Chinese cities organized in the field of networking and learning processes? Uh, it's in the national level and international collaboration. Yes. Yeah, so what a lot of people don't understand or don't know is, is that every city and also the, the federal government, the national government, the central government, have international advisory boards. So actually the, um, uh, the Professor Winter from Tromsa, who is in charge of the Polar Arctic uh, Research Center in Norway, is, or at least was until recently, helping on the central government level international advisory board for oceans. So 
what they do is they look for experts around the world and they say, please help critique this area and tell us based on where our development stage is at today, what can we be doing better? They actually actively ask for this. Shanghai has something called iBlock, International Business Leaders Advisory Council. I know this because one of my friends, Tess Manteo, was the chief, uh, uh, chief of staff for the head of PD PwC globally when Sam was in charge of the Shanghai iBlock, who's the chairperson. And this is something that is so prestigious that all the CEOs of the companies are on waiting lists to try and get onto the Shanghai iBlock. And of course, Beijing has their iBlock and many other cities have their own version of international advisory councils. So this is something that's really interesting. I don't know how many cities or countries for that matter, internationally have the same disciplined way to get critique instead of saying, oh, you know, being defensive about it. They're actually actively, proactively asking for this feedback. Have you a formal organization for mayors in, in China that helps each other? Well, all of the three organizations that I talked about are official academies that are networks for governments, not just mayors, every level of government. Everybody has to have a minimum of 12 days of training. Now, there are eight academies, eight academies. I taught at three of them. This was a very unusual honor for somebody to be able to do this. And it's one of the things that I realized was an acupuncture point. It was something that if you want change in China, this is the way that you get it done harmoniously, how you get everybody to learn about it very quickly and want this change versus, you know, very dispersed. So the China Academy of Governance, the head of international relations actually told me once that these academies are the secret to harmonious change in China. And I believe it. Oh, okay. Well, um, I've seen different types of governance structure on, in, in, in uh, Europe and particularly when I'm looking into the Swedish model and the Nordic countries are pretty much independency in the local government to take decision. But uh, it's not the same situation here in UK. And, um, and, and it's a different thing. Uh, for the Chinese uh, cities, I understand also. But uh, uh, many cities have problems with their own organization structure. They are always looking into silos. Uh, do you have that type of discussion in China about the holistic process processes or si silos decisions uh, that we need to change to make the best out of a decision? I think this is definitely an issue in China because there's ministries, right, yes. that are in charge of their territory. I mean, this is not, you know, unusual just for China. It's not unique to China. No, no. But because of the ministries, of course, there's territorial issues, right? However, what we do have is five-year plans. 
And these are essentially business plans for the government. Every five years, literally, they have a business plan that has metrics, literally numbers that the country has to meet. And then they have a central level that then is broken down into regions, multiple city regions, like the Yangtze River uh, area that I live in in Shanghai. And then within that region, they break it down into mayors for cities, what they're responsible for, you know, what number they have to reach. Then within that city, there's districts. And what's interesting about this is I remember looking at the removal of coal-fired boilers in Beijing, which is massive. It's almost 30 million people, right? So imagine if somebody said, you have to remove coal-fired boilers, right? But not only do they say this and buy wind, they put the names of people who are responsible, the government officials that were responsible. So imagine, you know, that's quite motivation for a Chinese person that everything is about face, right? Like, oh, you know, if I don't do this, you know, shame, shame on me. Yeah. This is very important to Chinese people. Yeah, I so, think that's a very common thing. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's very common in, in Asian culture. Yes, very, yes. So five-year plans, I think I want to stress um, one of the people in the Ministry of Finance, a friend of mine at the Young Global Leaders, actually once told me, he said, now he was saying this in a casual way. He wouldn't say this in a, in a formal setting necessarily, but we're having lunch privately. And he was saying, you know, Peggy, a lot of people think China's a communist country. It's not a communist country like what you might think of Russia or, uh, you know, Eastern Bloc. It's a multinational corporation. Don't you know that, Peggy? It has a business plan. It has a CEO. It has a chairman. It has a board, <laughs> right? The state council. And then it has branch managers. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. So now I tell people, look, you know, if you really want to understand how China works, think about it more like you're dealing with Cisco or GE or GM or whatever multinational corporation you're familiar with. It'll make you a lot more comfortable in how to deal with the government officials. Can you go into some of the examples of leading cities in China today uh, that have also delivered and both policy and uh, climate strategy and action uh, with high ambition targets? Well, I will tell you that there are hundreds of eco cities, model eco cities. There are at least 500 pilot smart cities today in China. And that was a couple of years ago before COVID. So there may be even more now. So every single city is competing with each other for some way to differentiate themselves, whether it's solar or the most number of wind or the blue economy or the smart city or the most number of electric vehicles, just if it's Shenzhen, right? Um, or the best urban transport, look at Shanghai, right? Um, look at Chengdu for sort of natural beauty. Uh, look at Gansu province for the most solar and wind, uh, so much that curtailment is an issue. So there are many, many cities, they're all doing it in their own way, doing it in their way. Hangzhou has great model, sort of what I call a bat cave, right? But it's really a smart city dashboard. It's a whole room that you can see every single metric of what's happening 
at a city level in Hangzhou. And you as a citizen actually have access to that information, not just the government, not just the companies, but you as a citizen. So every single district, every single company even is thinking about how do I use these metrics, these goals, these success metrics, these KPIs in the five-year plans, because money comes with it. Subsidies come with it, right? So it's very smart, actually. It's all aligned in, with incentives. So everybody's saying, how do I say that I'm a model, whatever city? Honestly, there are many, many, many cities, and they're all different because the terrain in China, the population in China, the, the food tastes in China, everything is different. Then the logistics are different. There's rural and urban. But is, so, it, is it any summit. of them? I understand that there's a lot of them who do yes. pretty much of a good work. But is it anyone that you has a, a, a favorite or sort of that, oh. the, that they're doing better than others? I, I'm going to be so biased. It's boring. <laughs> yeah. I live in Shanghai. I live in Shanghai. Shanghai is the best. It's the best city. I mean, just for example, the subways are built for 500 meters distance versus a thousand meters difference. That makes a huge difference to somebody like me who's walking, right? If you take a look at the urban planning, um, just the streets and the walkability, it's better than a lot of other cities. I'm not naming any other cities, I'm just saying Shanghai's better, right? Um, if you look at the ports, the largest port in Asia is going to be in Shanghai, I believe. And it's a lot of it is electrified. Now, I would say, obviously it has kudos in so many directions, right? They're trying to mix, I think, really innovative culture, a young, um, cool vibe, and a lot of really massive museums um, with some really great public transport. So the bus rapid transit first landed in Shenzhen. And many uh, American, actually, NGOs also helped with the Chinese government to bring in best practices. Um, I would say that um, in terms of, again, in Gansu, I mentioned that that's by the Tibetan Plateau in the Gobi Desert. Because there's so much sun and so much wind, uh, it's sort of unlivable for people, even though uh, I think maybe 14 million at least people chose to live there. But, you know, if you, if you look at it, there's so much sun and wind that it's become the number one producer for clean energy for renewables. I would say there's Rizhao, um, R-I-Z-H-A-O, that started out as a model for solar panels on for water heating on top of the rooftops. I would say there's many, many different places for organic farming. Um, too many, I mean, it's all very uh, local, so it's too many to to talk about. You know, again, I, I could keep going, but there's there's many different places that are trying. now. Are there any cities that have succeeded in becoming an eco city? I don't think so. I don't think so. But I take a look at trajectory that people are on, right? Is there momentum in the leadership for wanting to do a quantum leap? Is there milestones that I can celebrate? New subway lines all the time, new electric uh, uh, boats or cargo ships or um, the first... Um, district that has electric uh, self-driving taxis that are being tested, right? 
all those things are little milestones that build momentum and the tornado because every single time something happens everybody gets oh how cool is that and then the tornado keeps building right so what i look at in china is is the tornado increasing its angular momentum versus just going like this very slowly that's that's the difference with china so that's how it changes and improves at giga scale and at giga pace it's the tornado momentum I don't think we're going to talk about the tornado from the Gobi desert and <laughs> who, who hit my my face in Beijing uh, some years yeah. ago when I visited Beijing and it was a very it, it was not a very nice uh, moment of uh, yes. how, how yes. sand can come into a city and yes. really fill it with dust uh, of yes. sand but um, uh, I think that uh, I don't know if there have been. Um, I know that there has been a lot of development of of uh, planting trees in the Gobi Desert and and to try to minimize the, the effects of that type of storms coming into yes. cities like Beijing. Yes, yes. I think that there's been a lot of progress. For example, University of Chongqing, I believe, created um, a natural polymer, if you will. Uh, made out of sand that allowed you to retain water and plant uh, vegetables very easily. So there are massive areas now that are testing this technology. And when I say massive, China China does like thousands of hectares at, at, at once. If you look at a place called Lus Plateau, L-O-E-S-S Plateau, the World Bank worked there for 10 years. And uh, John Dennis Liu documented this in beautiful documentaries. And they turned it from basically desert. It was stripped bare of any trees to, to burn the trees for fuel. It looked like nothing. And over 10 years, the local government worked with the World Bank. And now it's a model of permaculture and diversity. And uh, basically, farming economy is now up and running, and it only took 10 years to transform a landmass the size of Belgium. And now it's increased to the size of France. So if you're in Europe, maybe you can understand that analogy, but that's, I mean, it's just big. It's just phenomenal what they've been able to do. So it's possible. And the interesting thing about China, and, and I've done many, many talks about this, about how China is the clean tech laboratory of the world because it experiments with new sustainable technologies, many cities at a time at city scale. So for example, when I brought in smart grid, the word didn't even exist in China. They didn't, really didn't know what that was. And I had pictures of electric vehicles as battery storage and you know solar power and wind power and all, all the things that you would think of in a smart grid. I did a little cartoon diagram in my white paper and the China State Grid, they looked at this, they go, what is this electric vehicle? This looks too far in advance. Maybe it should come back in 10 years. This was 2007, 2007. And so what happened was very rapidly in 2009, two and a half years later, uh, we had so much momentum 
from doing these workshops and doing a Clinton Global Initiative commitment and bringing in top VPs and CEOs from the US into China to share best practices, what happened was the city of Yangzhou became the first ever smart city demo, or they call it Smart Valley. So it was 200 mu, which I maybe 12 acres, I believe. Um, they set aside in the economic development zone for us to play with and build a demo. Then very rapidly, that became 12 and 13 cities, then 25 cities. And now we have over 500 smart cities, pilots today. So this is, this is again, the secret to China is because everything is building from scratch from you, or they're just raising everything and building again from you. You have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to do this, is experiment at multiple cities at the same time, and then be able to uh, say that works, this works. I'm just going to put the two together, three together, and create a model for the rest of the country. Let us talk a little bit more about the issue of leadership. And Peggy, you are one of the World Economic Forum young leader. And what has been the driver for you to be a leader, a change maker and entrepreneur? You know, I think for me, and this is not every leader, but for me, it's very important to accelerate our advance into the future. It's to bring the future in to today faster than it would have been if, if we were just sitting around and not doing anything. It's to teach people the simple tricks that I said at the beginning of the podcast of how do you dream the future so that we can leap into it today in such a real tangible way that you can feel joyfully leaping into a new world today. That takes a little bit of explaining of how the nature of reality works. So I lean into my Asian heritage of Taoism, of Buddhism. I lean into my Qigong practice and energetic practice. I lean into many of the teachers of the world about what is time? What is matter? What is the heart? What is the brain got to do with reality? So I think a leader has to really understand the nature of reality and to show people that they are creators of the reality that they want. They have the power. That to me is what a true leader does. So if you would like to recommend any books for others and the listener here uh, to what they should read this summer. Well, for me personally, a lot of it has to do with energetics because at this stage in my life, I talk about, I look at everything as energetics, whether it's a, a crook in your neck because you thought, oh, the pillow was too high or something and now you have a pain or you have a headache and you have a, a family member or a lover that is angry at you or the tornado energy of a group of people, a community of people. I look at everything as energy, as vibration, as frequency, as amplitude, as resonance, as alignment, as friction, as inertia, entropy, 
those words to me are very important. So I tend to look at spiritual books to get inspiration that I can then translate into Economist Innovation Summits or a TED Talk or a talk to uh, you know, investors. You know, I translate that world and this world. And so for me, you know, one of the very beginning uh, books that was, you know, it's, it's a very easy read because it's just uh, written like a, almost like a children's adventure and is teaching you how to listen to synchronicity. So that one is very important, how to listen to the things you're not taught to listen to. So Celestine Prophecies was a bestseller for many, many years. There was another book that I'm reading right now, a friend of mine gave me called Synchronicity. Synchronicity to me. So I will be writing my own book this year on tornado leadership, how to create these tornado movements. And I'm going to be sharing a lot of these secrets because honestly, there's not, there's not a book that I can tell you, go read this to learn about what I'm talking about. It's like little bits and pieces. Uh, so I'll stop there. I would say Celestine Prophecy to listen and then Synchronicity um, is a book that I'm just starting, which seems very, very good. But anything with the heart, anything that allows you to listen to the heart. I would also say Body Keeps the Score um, will teach you some basics about how the energetics of other people around the world actually affect your physical body, your ailments, your emotion, your spirit, your karma. So will will the book about the tornado be read, ready so they can send it to the leaders in Glasgow this uh, winter? <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea, Kai. Okay, that gives me a little incentive to write faster. So I'm just starting to uh, transcribe all the speeches that I've done. I've done many speeches on it. I just haven't written the book. So I'm transcribing all my speeches and I'm adding to it. I'll give you a draft to look at if you're willing oh, to help great. me edit. Yeah. It has been very nice, uh, inspirational to talk to you, Peggy. And, and uh, thank you for you took the time today. And uh, then uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you, Kai. Thank you for having me. I appreciate all the work that you're doing at the city level. I'll speak to you on Clubhouse soon. Yes. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.